0: Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Keep Calm and Carry On Investing. I'm your host, Daniel Paris. This is episode 15. It's called The Descent of Growth Investing. My apologies to Charles Darwin, among many others. Anthropologists looking at the origins of humans will often refer to a common ancestor, a starting point. Look at us today, and you don't see much in common. We come in different sizes, shapes, shades, and that's before we get to our political views. The Western religious tradition posits just one god, but several thousand years later, we have three very different monotheistic religions in the West with dozens of variants of the main traditions. Few would liken stock styles to the weighty categories of human variety listed above, but for the sake of argument, I will here. My day job involves overseeing a dividend-focused complex of products. We take our dividend mandate seriously and so look for very little like our equity income peers and nothing like most of the U.S. stock market. How did we get to that state of affairs where a cash-on-cash investing approach is a mere boutique option without even a square in the dominant style box, without a dedicated standard benchmark of the type that drives so much professional money management? As a historian, I'm inclined to look to the past for answers to current challenges. In this case, that approach entails roughing out a lineage of stock market investment styles, specifically growth investing, that has then become dividend-free growth investing. This is not meant to be a comprehensive history. In fact, the opposite. I'm trying to make a very specific point about the U.S. market over the past 70 years, especially the last four decades. And that point is that the U.S. stock market has evolved in a rather unusual direction sharply away from a cash-on-cash relationship. That uh, evolution is not illegal, immoral, or even improvident, but it is unusual from other mature capital markets and from business practices the world over for centuries. Investors content with a non-cash relationship with their equity holdings will benefit from knowing whence they came. And my besieged community of dividend-focused investors may take some comfort in knowing how far afield the current market is, in short, that they're not crazy. In the beginning, then, I intone in my best Charlton Heston voice, there was the Dutch East India Company. From its launch in 1602 until the mid-20th century, investment in a stock was, in most instances for most people, all about the dividend that investors could expect to receive. That is not to suggest that there weren't frauds, bubbles, struggling enterprises, and all sorts of non-dividend investment decisions and holding experiences. But weigh up those headline-dominating moments, and they pale in comparison to the much quieter but vastly greater experience of everyday coupon clipping. From that perspective, it was clear that the dividend paid was the ultimate measure of a stock's uh, long-term success. If the dividend was paid, that was good. If it was increased, that was better. Over the long term, share prices would reflect the trajectory of the dividend. And for almost all of that period, until the early 20th century, the dividend was also usually the only public information beyond the share price that one might be able to get about a company. While the detailed math of net present value applied to investments would come starting in the late 19th century and get worked out fully in the 1930s, investors prior to that instinctively understood, as most successful business people have from time immemorial, that the value of an asset what you might pay for it, is based on what you could expect to derive from that asset as its owner. And, echoing Irving Fisher, even if your intention was to sell the asset a week or a month or a year later, the buyer was or should be doing the same mental and actual math. That is, what utility, the cash flow, would they derive from long-term ownership of the holding? Trading assets may be more exciting, but most houses are lived in, not flipped. Most farmland is worked, not bought and sold. Most stores and businesses are owned, not transacted. Despite having a market open daily and a new price to consider every morning, stock is or was more owned than it is or was bought and sold. That reality should lead investors to focus on what they receive for their capital and only secondarily on the price one might fetch for disposing of it. To this day, this underlying cash flow DNA in stock valuation is present in the form of DDMs, DCFs, MPVs, and the other cash flow-based valuation formulas. Pick your favorite stock, say, a popular EV company, electronic vehicle company, that only reports a profit by selling carbon credits, and dig into the back of any brokerage report on it. There you will find a DCF of one form or another that justifies the current price of the security based on the present value of some future cash flows. In shorter reports, you may just see a workup of earnings multiples, but remember, an earnings multiple, the famous PE, or the infamous EBITDA multiple, is just a shorthand measure of cash flow valuation. It may be only cash flow to management, but it is still cash flow. If a company is so remote from earnings that it can only sport a multiple of sales or some other metric for pre-revenue companies, then you are in the realm of pure speculation. It may be very reasoned, very high confidence, and very uh, ultimately successful speculation, but it is share price-based speculation all the same. There's nothing wrong with that. Let's just not confuse it with cash flow-based investment. While cash payments to company owners constituted the default setting of success for all private businesses since time immemorial and for all stock investing for centuries, the intellectual lineage is of more recent vintage. Irving Fisher explicitly outlined the logic in 1906 in The Nature of Capital Income, Burl and Means highlighted the disadvantaged position of the minority shareholder in 1932 in the modern corporation and private property. John Burr-Williams worked out uh, the specific math of DCFs in 1938 in his theory of investment value, and without specifically discussing dividends, Michael Jensen in articles in 1976 and 86 reframed the Burl and Means perspective through a theory of the firm rife with agency conflicts over the disposition of free cash flow. In that conflict, dividends are an important weapon, shall we say, for otherwise disadvantaged shareholders. Along the way, a host of practitioners and academics, and practitioner academics, have highlighted the benefits of approaching stocks from the perspective of dividends received. They include, in no particular order, Benjamin Graham, John Lintner, Myron Gordon, Harry and Linda D'Angelo, Robert Schiller, Jeremy Siegel, Robert Arnott, and generations upon generations of coupon-clipping investors. Uh, Other dividend-focused stock investors may have a different list with somewhat different emphases, but I think this hits the highlights. More than four centuries of investing practice and more than a century of academics working out the math and putting it in print. This, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, is what I consider the benchmark of business ownership through the stock market. Now let's turn to deviations from the norm. Before doing so, I do want to acknowledge yet again uh, frequent and extended periods of time when non-dividend-paying equities dominated the headlines. Uh, In a recent podcast from March 30th, I hosted the financial historian William Quinn, co-author of Boom and Bust, A Global History of Financial Bubbles. He covered a lot of uh, bubbles in which stocks would not have made payments to shareholders because the underlying cash flows were just not there, no doubt. But what I'm pointing to is when non-payment became the norm, not the exception. So... How did we get to the current state of affairs, where explicit direct investment in publicly traded companies based on dividends paid out to company owners, and the future of those dividends occupies just a tiny corner of the U.S. stock market agora, where large, successful businesses with ample internal cash flows do not reward shareholders in cash and are not called to task for not doing so? It is a strange world indeed. In a previous post on my website from July 17th, I highlighted how few and far between dividends are to be found in the main part of the U.S. stock market. 100 years ago, the opposite would have been true, with some 90% of the market for larger listed companies on the NYSE and other major major regional exchanges having dividends, leaving an estimated 10% for troubled companies, overt speculations, companies actually raising capital through the uh, stock market, et cetera. I'm estimating that number, by the way. CRISP, that is the Center for Research into Security Prices, the CRISP database at the University of Chicago has the answers, but alas, I do not have access to it. Still, it's a reasonable guess. Why reasonable? Because any serious commentary about a company at the time highlights its dividend. And at that time, 1921, the yield of the New York market, as defined and calculated by Robert Schiller, was around 7%. And the payout ratio of profits, as calculated at the time, was 89%. Both are at the high end of the dividend range, reflecting the circumstances immediately after World War I. But with a 7% yield for the market as a whole, it's hard to imagine large numbers of dividend-free growth stocks roaming the landscape. That animal just didn't exist at the time. So for now, the only real way to check is through CRISP. If any of you have access, by the way, please run a quick review of the 500 largest companies in 1921 and what percentage had dividends. I'd be stunned if it was less than 90%. In 1963, where I begin to get some data, it was 92% for the largest 462 corps that I can find, and 90% for the largest 500 in 1971. Thank you to Chris Senyak's team at Wolf Research for that data. Fast forward a century, and the numbers are more or less reversed, if not exactly empirically, then certainly so in spirit. While only 120 companies in the S&P 500 don't have dividends at all, So many of the remaining ones have such a low payout and yield that the market itself sports an inconsequential yield of 1.4%. Why even bother? And dozens of large, mature, successful enterprises do not make any shareholder distributions. Uh, And by the way, share buybacks do not count. They do not put cash into the hands of shareholders, only share sellers. That is a point I will return to later. So how did we go from one extreme to the opposite, from one normal to a completely different normal? Here I will outline the emergence of dividend-free or essentially dividend-free stock investing. It starts with the otherwise benign, indeed beneficial emergence of growth investing as a distinct investment style. Let's start with that and see how growth investing ended up being dividend-free investing. In any review of the market in the 1920s and 30s, uh, one can find reference to growth stocks. That's not hard. And uh, they were not necessarily treated as speculations, though many were. But at that time, there were no style benchmarks, no universe of growth products that could be measured and analyzed. So the world of growth investing in the 1920s and 1930s is anecdotal at best. That begins to change in the post-war period, uh, especially in the 1950s and through the 1960s, when we see the emergence of growth as an explicit investment style, not just a characterization of certain listings. Having founded his own investment management business in 1937, T. Rowe Price, you may know the name, was enthusiastically picking growth stocks for his clients by the 1950s. The firm launched what they consider the nation's first growth fund, the T. Rowe Price Growth Stock Fund, at the beginning of that decade. The securities held there almost certainly had robust dividends. Growth was not in opposition to dividends, it was just growth. What was the dividend yield of said fund? I'll try to find out, but uh, if I can't, perhaps one of you can. At the time, the market, defined as the precursor to the S&P 500 index, yielded around 7%. Yes, 7%. Whatever the growth fund's yield was, I can assure you, it was not zero. During the same decade, investment advisor Philip Fisher hit it big with his Common Stocks and Uncommon Profits, published in 1958. His message was simple and well-tuned for the times by growing companies. Uh, There was lots of growth to be had in the 1950s and 60s. Post-war America was prosperous and on an economic roll, so the identification of growth stocks and growth investing isn't that surprising. The specific performance investing, quote, end quote, performance investing culture that emerged in the 1960s was so well captured by, that was so well captured by the journalists John Brooks and George Goodman, was all about prices going up sharply and quickly. What may come as more of a surprise is that, generally speaking, these growth companies had dividends. The payout ratios and yields might have been less, but they were still there. Clearly, dividends had taken a back seat, but they were still part of the equation, just an overlooked one. As to the exact nature of the equation, the academics were playing catch-up in the 1950s and 60s. They seemed to struggle with one overarching question, how to value growth stocks. It was hard then, it's hard now. The numerous new investing and finance journals that uh, uh, appeared at that time were filled with their efforts, including those by academic heavyweights such as David Durand and John Lintner, among others. I've read those articles. As they grapple with value and growth, the cash flows received by shareholders in the form of dividends are still a major point of the exercise. They do not posit stocks without dividends. Yes, the payout ratio was lower than non-growth stocks to allow reinvestment but it was far from zero, and the dividend was still a central part of the actual valuation equation. You can see that even in the case of the period's leading investment bubble, the nifty-fifty of the uh, late 60s and early 70s. It was a period of frenzied growth activity and even greater expectations with, frankly, little regard for the dividends. But it is again worth noting that the market as a whole and the established companies, even the nifty-fifty, were still overwhelmingly dividend stocks because, at the time, all serious equities were still dividend stocks. During those decades, the infrastructure of growth investing was filled in. The currently dominant style benchmarks were introduced by Russell in 1984. Uh, Following the discovery of factors thought to drive share prices and value, the dividend was reduced to just one of a long and growing list of considerations in stock and portfolio uh, analysis and uh, portfolio attribution. It used to be the only one a century before, but, but no more. The early 1990s marked another milestone. Morningstar introduced the Hollywood Square style box with its growth value and core categories. Investors and companies were getting used to a growth environment sporting low yields. Dividends were still available, but clearly receding from their former pride of place in the investment equation. With this passage of time, investors wanting nothing to do with dividends and corporate managers not wanting to pay them finally got some academic backing. In 1961, Merton uh, and Miller had argued that dividends, famously argued that dividends didn't matter in the evaluation of of, uh, growth companies. That ended up being just a precursor to the full-blown academic assault on dividend payments that would occur over the next several decades. Uh, In 1976, MIT professor Fisher Black famously pondered the very existence of dividends in a brief essay In the Journal of Portfolio Management, uh, he admitted not being able to figure out why companies paid dividends or investors sought them out at all. It was, for him, quote, a puzzle with pieces that just don't fit together, end quote. Fisher uh, listed ways for companies to return cash to shareholders other than dividends. The most obvious was share buybacks, which were not as fashionable or feasible as they would become decades later. His main argument, however, is taxes. At the time, they were higher on dividends than on capital gains, and one could be timed, the other could not. And from a corporate tax perspective, dividend payments uh, were not tax-deductible, unlike interest payments on bonds. As a result, they are subject to double taxation, first at the corporate level and then at the investor level. Black sums up the problem, quote, with taxes, investors and corporations are no longer indifferent, a la uh, Miller and Modigliani, to the level of dividends. They prefer smaller dividends or no dividends at all, end quote. Uh, 15 years later, in 1990, uh, Black doubled down by stating that dividends would gradually disappear from the stock market. The non dividend community finally had a champion in the Ivory Tower. Uh, other big league academics have followed in his footsteps, including some earlier guests on this show, and, and led often by those focused on behavioral finance. They consider investing for dividends to be irrational and a fallacy, and companies paying them uh, doing so just to cater to an irrational clientele. Please listen into episode six for greater detail about how irrational I am, according to those academics. So the question remains, why exactly did the dividends disappear? The appearance of growth-style investing with its full infrastructure of funds, factors, benchmarks, consultants, and blustering academics may have been a necessary circumstance, but not a sufficient cause for cash payments to company owners to diminish so dramatically. Same with the tax headwind. Correlation is not causation. In short, growth, per se, is not the issue. To paraphrase Gordon Gecko, growth is good. Dividend investors are all in favor of growing dividends. There had to be other stronger causal reasons for the stripping of dividends from the U.S. market. From my perspective, what really pushed dividends to the side is a combination of three overarching trends that continue to this day. The first is the decline in interest rates starting in the early 1980s. The second is the shift from dividends to buybacks starting in the 80s as well, but really gathering steam in the 1990s. And the third was the rise of Silicon Valley and NASDAQ as a safe place for companies to list and trade without dividends. Let's take each of these in turn. The impact of the 40-year decline in interest rates on dividends is a bit like the tail of the frog not noticing until it is too late as the water in the pot gets warmer by one degree increments. Interest rates serve many functions. See episode 12 on that topic, but one of them is a base rate of cash returns upon which other base rates of cash returns are set. 40 years ago, that base rate was in the mid-teens, an unusually high level, granted. But from that high perch, the expectation of cash compensation from other types of assets would be influenced. In short, stocks had to pay something, maybe not 15%, but something, as they had for the prior 400 years. As rates came down over the past four decades, the expectations of cash compensation from equity have also diminished as well. The 10-year Treasury bond and the yield of the S&P 500 index are about the same, one3 1.4%, both extraordinarily low by historical standards. Their relative history, by the way, is fascinating. For as long as we have records up to 1958, the cash yield of the broad stock market was higher than that of the U.S. 10-year bond. It made sense. Stocks were risky. They were supposed to compensate in cash investors for taking on that incremental risk. In 1921, a century ago, the equity cash yield premium over bonds was around 2.5%. Seventy years ago, in 1951, it was around 4%. But a decade of strong economic growth after the war and expectations of its continuation led to the lines crossing, first in 1957 and then for good in in 1958. By then, investors had concluded that the growth prospects of the market were so good and the risk relatively low that they would accept lower, not higher, cash compensation from equities compared to the 10-year note. That optimism continued more or less for the past 50 years, until the plummeting of the 10-year after the great financial crisis, uh, when it caught up, or shall we say down, with the market's low yield over the past three decades. The cash yields of the two benchmarks are now jockeying back and forth as investors are not unified as to the relative riskiness and expected cash return of these two very different asset types. Now on to the second cause, share buybacks. In 1982, the SEC approved Rule 10b-18, which allowed companies to purchase their own shares with minimal risk of being charged with market manipulation. At the time, the move was part of a trend towards market deregulation. Share repurchases grew rapidly, especially in the 1990s, and soon surpassed dividend payouts for the S&P 500 index companies in absolute dollar terms. You can see the charts and numbers in my previous books and website posts. From a company management perspective, buybacks are infinitely superior to dividends. They goose EPS by reducing the share denominator. Since EPS growth has become a central component of executive compensation over the past few decades, the allure is obvious. Having an extra buyer in the market, in theory, also supports share prices. And as total return is also another central component of executive compensation, the allure is doubled. In contrast, dividend payments come out of the share price, when a company goes ex-dividend, and that creates a headwind for executives given share options with fixed strike prices. Granted, those options can be dividend-adjusted over time, but if they are not, the holders of those options really do not like dividends. Senior managers also strongly prefer discretionary buybacks because they keep the senior managers in control of the company's free cash flow. In the absence of a dividend commitment, management can use the free cash flow to invest in projects that they want, Almost without restriction, they can engage in large-scale and and or boost their own pay packets with the buybacks, or a combination of all three. That is the situation described by Michael Jensen and why, from my perspective, minority shareholders of large publicly traded entities need to insist on dividends to help keep imperial CEOs in check. In short, with dividends, management works for the shareholders. Without dividends, management is in complete control with limited direct accountability to the shareholders. And a final word about buybacks. Words, words matter. Be careful about how you use them and how others use them around you. On no basis whatsoever other than words, buybacks have been packaged with dividend payments as cash return to shareholders. That is nonsense. A dividend payment is a check in the mail to an existing shareholder. A buyback is a transaction in the marketplace providing liquidity and perhaps a better or a worse price to share sellers, not shareholders. As I've described in prior posts, a capital sale is not the same thing as a dividend payment, not even close. The third cause for the dramatic diminishment of dividends in the stock market landscape has been the rise of Nasdaq and Silicon Valley. It's hard to be critical here, and I'm not even going to try. Nasdaq was founded as an electronic trading only exchange in 1971 and has been the leading growth has been leading the growth wave uh, ever since. Its original bias towards smaller, rapidly growing tech companies made it an unusual place to expect dividend payments. I concur. And as NASDAQ grew, its share of the investable market cap came out of the more staid and dividend-oriented NYSE and the nearby American Stock Exchange, the former former, uh, Curb Exchange. The two merged in 2008. At last count, that is August 2021, there were 2,894 NASDAQ-listed companies with a market cap over $100 million, their median yield is zero. How do you get a median yield of zero? More than 50% of the companies have no dividend. The weighted dividend yield is 63 basis points, uh, just over half of 1%. On the NYSE, there were 2,173 companies over the threshold. Uh, the median yield of them is 48 basis points, a half percent The weighted yield is 1.93%. That reflects the size and dividend payments of large old economy companies. The essentially dividend-free NASDAQ now represents just over 40% of the combined market cap of the two exchanges. That's a lot of the real estate. So let's summarize. The net effect of these three trends is what we know and see today. The U.S. stock market has been transformed from an income-oriented investment platform to a share-price-based one. And in fairness, I should note the long list of investors who are content with this new model. Those practitioners include no less than Warren Buffett, who believes clearly in retained and reinvest earnings, reinvested earnings, and millions of punters watching share prices. On the managerial side, it is an impressive list of CEOs who have also mastered the art of successful reinvestment, at least for now. They include Jeff Bezos, Jeff Zuckerberg, among many other, among many other technology glitterati. There's a lot of support on this side of the equation. So that's where we are today. Fortuna's wheel has turned 180 degrees, Bothius is not happy, and he takes little consolation. But at least there is a logic to how we've gotten to this cashless place. For dividend-focused investors, there is utility in knowing how we got there, and that we can now be seen as the outsider, the underdog, and perhaps even the innovator in investments. We are zigging when everyone else is zagging. We use the stock market to generate income when everyone else is focused on the share prices. In my post from July 17th, I indicated clearly that even under the current adverse circumstances, it is possible to generate a meaningful income stream from a diversified portfolio of stocks. Few do it, but it can be done. For those investors with their gaze exclusively upon share prices, being familiar with what made that possible should give them some fortitude, understanding that the winds have been blowing in their sails for the past 40 years. Good, Good for them. As to the future, I stick with my perhaps controversial view that the shift from cash to cashless has been an anomaly and will mean revert at some point. Can't say when, can't say what the catalyst will be, but that remains my view. It appears that interest rates may have ended their decades-long decline. If they start rising, cash compensation expectations will also rise. Buybacks are also under scrutiny, as they should be. The NASDAQ community remains incredibly dynamic and innovative. Society is better off for it. But even here, there is a reasonable expectation that as the NASDAQ giants mature, they will start making distributions to company owners. It can happen. It should happen. Mark Zuckerberg, Sundar Pichai, Andy Jazzy, please give me a call to discuss. While we're waiting for this mean reversion to happen, uh, there is an approach to managing uh, cash-based equity investments side-by-side with cashless-based stockholdings, And that is, as outlined in the final chapter of Getting Back to Business, by viewing them as an entirely different asset class. In that regard, a corporate bond or a high yield bond or a high dividend paying equity, these occupy the cash based silo where the level and trajectory of income can be managed, measured, assessed, and so forth, valued. Uh, Investments that make no distributions, such as zero coupon bonds and stocks with no or de minimis distributions, fall into a different silo, one based strictly on expectations of market price and harvesting would be gains through a transaction. Again, there's nothing wrong with that. Indeed, some of my best friends are those types of investors. That's it for this episode of Keep Calm and Carry On. Thank you so much for listening.